Savannah is one of the epicenters of the Roman Catholic faith in the American South and the seat of the Nidey County Diocese of Savannah, which stretches across central and southern Georgia. The diocese is led by a bishop, and Pope Francis named a new spiritual leader for the diocese last summer in Stephen Parks. Bishop Parks is our latest difference maker. This podcast is presented by the Savannah Economic Development Authority. are all around us, in government, in business, in nonprofits, in our schools, and on our sports fields, and also in our churches. The Difference Makers podcast takes a deep look at what makes these people difference makers and how they are improving our community. And today's guest is Savannah's top priest, Bishop Stephen Parks. He was named to lead the Savannah Diocese early last summer and was ordained last September. He's off to a good start with local Catholics who find him engaging and welcoming. And as you'll hear in this interview, he's also very open about himself and his journey to the priesthood, and about the challenges the church faces. With that, here's Bishop Parks. Joined on the latest episode of Difference Makers by Bishop Stephen Parks, who has been the newcomer to Savannah still, but has settled in and has made his way around the Diocese of Savannah, which we need to note, it's 90 counties. So yes, it's based right here in Savannah, but it covers... If you take a line and go a little bit north of Augusta and draw that line straight across the state to be a little bit north of Columbus, everything below that line is the Diocese of Savannah. So I'm sure people in North Georgia don't like when I when people say this, but if it's not Atlanta, it's probably within our diocese. Yes, so, I would agree with that, and it's a beautiful area yeah. too. Very, very diverse. Right, right. You've, you've, you've seen a lot of it in the last couple of months mm-hmm. for sure. I have. I've had the opportunity to make a number of trips all around the diocese, and at this point I've put about 22,000 miles on my car oh. in the last six months, so mostly here in South Georgia. Gee whiz. <laughs> so you know all the shortcuts around everything. and Learning. You're learning. <laughs> Yeah. In South Georgia, it's not a lot of main roads, so you better know the shortcuts. There's not, but you know, I'm actually pretty impressed, Adam, that Mm -hmm. there's a four-lane highway pretty much in most of the areas that you go. You're never too far from a four-lane highway. Right. And they're they're well done. Not always very well traveled, but uh, there is a convenient way to get from one place to another. Yeah. And watch it at night, because I've seen the deer come shooting across. Yes. You haven't met any of those yet? I have not yet. I've seen them off on the side, but never in the middle of the road. Cross cross your fingers and say a little prayer and (laughs) see what happens. So the way we always start these is we start with biographical. And uh, since you came on, I think a lot of people, at least the Catholics among us, have tried to learn what they can about you. And I think this is probably a pretty good opportunity for for more people to learn about you. And a couple Mm -hmm. of things that jump out about me, to me, about you is you're from Long Island. You grew up on Long Island. Mm -hmm. And then from Long Island, you went to Florida. But let's back up and, and talk about Long Island and growing up and growing up. And uh, your brother is, is a bishop as well. Yes. So I'm, I'm getting, you were an altar server, so I'm guessing that the Catholic Church has been part of, your, of who you are since you were born. Certainly my family, my parents actually met through their Catholic campus ministry, through their Newman Center. Mm-hmm. My mom went to the University of South Carolina. I hope that's not a bad word here in Georgia. And Florida's my dad worse. went to Clemson. So they were kind of competitive there between the two universities, Mm. and they actually met through their Catholic faith. And that was in the late 1950s. We're married in 1960. They had three sons. In our home growing up, faith was always important. 
Mm-hmm. I've often thought that we were not what I would call a particularly devotional family. Mm-hmm. We prayed before meals. We went to Mass on Sunday. I had the opportunity to go to Catholic school from first grade through eighth grade. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, our family was into many different things, many different activities. Church was always important. Church was always a priority. And my parents mm-hmm. set the expectation pretty high of what they expected. And our faith was important. Uh, we were maybe not a devotional family, but we were a faithful family, mm-hmm. which I would hope describes a lot of families today. I think so. That maybe they, they don't necessarily pray the rosary every night. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, today there's so many ways that we can connect to our faith through evangelization efforts, through technology. It's wonderful. And I think those are great ways to allow our faith into our home. Mm-hmm. So our home growing up was definitely a faith-filled family. Mm-hmm. Two people from South Carolina, or at least went to school in South Carolina, how did they end up in, in Long Island? My mom was from New York. Okay. So she really wanted to stay south, and my dad wanted to go north. So I'd say for whatever reason in the job market, he ended up winning out. He was a physics major, and she was a teacher. But they always wanted to come south. And actually, throughout their married life, they're both deceased at this point. They always looked for opportunities. My father ended up working for a bank in Long Island in New York City. And then uh, he always looked for opportunities to come south. But it just never worked out. But inevitably, we all ended up here. Right. Growing up on Long Island, what was what was there to do? Did you did you enjoy the, the water? Did you enjoy sports? What what was your interest? We lived near the water. Mm-hmm. So in Massapequa, which mm-hmm. is about an hour from New York City and Nassau County, mm-hmm. so we could ride our bikes down to the water. I grew up in a family where our parents uh, enrolled us in CYO, playing baseball and basketball, mm-hmm. and certainly other activities. Um, enjoyed good friendships. The area where we grew up in was probably kind of... Um, I don't know if this would make sense, but Beaver Cleaver it was just right. kind of a nice suburban neighborhood. And uh, we lived there until 1984. Uh, the public school system had a good reputation. And uh, also we were able to walk to the Catholic school. So kind of had the best of both worlds. Arts, band, what kind of interests? Tried music uh-huh. and uh, always enjoyed the guitar. I had three years of guitar lessons and something I'd like to continue to pursue. Mm-hmm. And I played the piano also, but never really got very good at it. I don't know if it was just I didn't practice enough. That's usually the complaint of parents. Their child didn't practice enough. My older brother was very musical. He was able to play by ear. So that's a gift or talent that I think some have and perhaps some do not. I did enjoy, our parents exposed us, I think, a lot to classical things to the arts living in new, not too far from new york city mm-hmm. there were opportunities there and even on long island for culture so i think my dad always enjoyed i remember growing up he enjoyed listening to classical music a teenager doesn't enjoy listening to <laughs> classical music but we remember our dad listening to it and i think my parents wanted to make sure that we were well-rounded and had a good understanding and appreciation for varied arts Enjoyed traveling. Yeah. Uh, we would like to uh, go visit very often to visit down on the East Coast and visit our grandparents lived in Augusta, North Augusta area, mm-hmm. and also in um, in Florida, in Daytona Beach area. Okay, so 
does that get you to Florida? Was the family connection? It was. It was. My, again, that desire to always move south. They waited till I graduated from high school, mm-hmm. and I was a student at the University of South Florida in Tampa, mm-hmm. and then uh, ended up um, graduating and taking a job in Tampa for uh, six months, and then ended up getting transferred over to Orlando. Right. So I kind of made Orlando my home right. until I discerned the priesthood in 1992, went to the mm-hmm. seminary, and studied for the Diocese of Orlando. Now, I know that, as you said, the priesthood wasn't necessarily in your plans growing up. But you, I think you looked, you were looking at becoming a physician and did some other right. things. What were some of the influences? What steered you toward, at least initially, sure. a different career path? Sure. I, I always thought about being a doctor, a dentist, or an orthodontist. I was very open to that. I went to college and took the sciences, a few engineering classes as well. I think chemistry kind of did me in. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed and I did very well, got good grades, but didn't necessarily have a grasp. I think I realized I was not a scientist. Mm -hmm. So I thought of other options and ended up saying, you know, I think maybe business would be good. Mm -hmm. So I ended up with a degree in marketing. And I think that that's prepared me well for the priesthood. You know, very often Mm -hmm. our paths in life are drawn with crooked lines. Mm -hmm. And we may pursue one area, but inevitably it ends up elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And we have to trust in God and have a sense of peace. And I've always gone to that, that that peace that we have when we know that it's what we should be doing. And that led me, I think, to the business area where I worked in retail for a period of time and then went to get a job with a bank which i worked for for three and a half years before entering the seminary did you get a sense when you're working for the bank that this was uh, i like what i'm doing but this is not where it was leading me honestly adam it was kind of a grind Mm -hmm. and i i believe i realized that the nine to five was probably not for me and being in an office that i enjoyed being out and about and uh, being more with people and developing relationships. That's something I did learn at the bank in a good way was at that time there were a lot of mergers of financial institutions. Mm -hmm. And so there was that opportunity. I think banks were more looking at marketing themselves Mm -hmm. and being able to realize the gift of relationship I don't think that was in bank banking previous to that. It was you deposited your money and right. and went to get it out, would get a car loan or a house loan. But I think today is much more focused on relationship. I believe working for the bank, I learned good skills, mm-hmm. taught me good skills of, of working in an office, of communication, of the need for uh, respect, um, of you know meeting people in all different levels mm-hmm. and trying to serve them. Now, from what I've read, somewhere along that way, you go to a retreat mm-hmm. that involves the, the priesthood. It, yes. it, it didn't take right away, I guess, but what kind of what planted the seed for you? It was called come and see. Right. So I went and saw, but I realized uh, that when I left after the weekend, I did not leave with an application. I went home that night. My parents asked, oh, well, you know, do you have the application? My mom cooked a very nice dinner. I always remember. <laughs> I think in thinking there was going to be this big announcement. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, sometimes things have to percolate. Right. They have to kind of kind of, uh, kind of, of rise up. And I, for me, it was another two years before I ended up going and getting an application and going through the interview process. Mm-hmm. And to apply for the seminary and for priesthood today, it is an extensive process. Mm-hmm. Was your brother already in a priesthood at that time? Was there he was not. Pressure? No. Now, I will tell you, growing mm-hmm. up, he was the one we always thought would be a priest. I think I was a little bit more of the surprise in the family. Mm-hmm. But I went first to okay. the seminary. 
because I maybe a sense of uh, adventure, a sense of my feeling was, well, what's the worst that's going to happen? I feel a call to priesthood, mm-hmm. but I will go, I will learn more about my faith. Mm-hmm. And if this is what God wants for me, great. Mm-hmm. And I'll know that. I'll know that sense of peace. But if not, well, I've learned more about my faith, of an understanding of the Catholic Church, could perhaps be a good ambassador for those discerning priesthood. Mm-hmm. So I really saw, that, saw it as win-win mm-hmm. because I wasn't very satisfied or fulfilled in the career path that I was going on, and I realized that this was a time for a good change. Now, a vocation to the priesthood is not a career. It truly is a vocation. Mm-hmm. You jump full full headfirst into it. So it's not nine to five. But I feel as though I was well prepared for it and learned a lot in the seminary. Yeah, that's interesting because that was my next question was is, you know, if I go and change a career, it's it's changing a career. But sure. when you when you go to be a priest, you know, mm-hmm. it's, that's your life. It, it we we like to talk about well, my work doesn't necessarily define me. Right, your work does define you. Mm-hmm. You know, you're giving up uh, celibacy. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't take a vow of poverty necessarily, but but you're never going to climb a ladder and, and become wealthy and right. become those trappings. How, as you're sitting there as a, as a young man trying to decide what you're going to do, how much of that is is in this ear, and how much of the God's call is in the other ear? I think there's a you have. In the seminary, we have to realize that it's a marathon; it's mm-hmm. not a sprint. Mm-hmm. And also to realize that you can't you can't wake up day to day and ask, "Is God calling me today to be a priest?" Mm-hmm. It's sort of the bigger picture, and seeing it from a larger standpoint of our gifts, our talents, and again, where we receive that gift of peace mm-hmm. from. So there's that gnawing question when you're in the seminary, and I was six years in the seminary: mm-hmm. Is this really for me? At some point there's a decision. Mm-hmm. At some point there is that, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm buying a black suit. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pursue uh, this as my vocation. This is where God wants me to be. Because certainly we can look at it as I'm giving something up. Mm-hmm. Certainly a family, the love of one woman, this mm-hmm. is what celibacy is in order to, and having my own family in order to love the entire family right. of God. And certainly that's could be looked at as giving up, it also could be seen as a gift. Mm-hmm. That's really what celibacy is. It is a gift. It's something that we are called to. And in seminary, we also are formed. Mm-hmm. So just as a couple, when they are going to be prepared for marriage, mm-hmm. it's not just planning a wedding. Mm-hmm. It's planning a lifetime. Right. A wedding is a day, but a marriage is a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so in that process, very often a long engagement probably not the worst thing Mm -hmm. because it gives a chance truly to get to know one another, maybe not fully in a hundred percent, but you know, you can work together and you have a sense of peace about it. So I think seminary making it in an an, an analogy to marriage, the six years of seminary is a long engagement Mm -hmm. and there's that opportunity really up to the day that you are ordained to say, I don't think this is for me. And at some point that decision did come Mm -hmm. for me. It came Yes, I went through seminary. I was for, uh, for four years, and then I did a pastoral year. That was my uh, fourth year. And after that year, I said, I really was definitely sure. I said, yes, God, I'm, I'm ready. I'm open. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to pursue this. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. Now, previous to that, I was 95% sure, but there right. was that, sometimes that 5%, yeah. sometimes that 0.1% can be the gnawing factor at you. You know, is this really what you want? Is this really going to make you happy? I think the question is, is this what God wants for me? Mm. Is this what God wants for you uh, when someone is in marriage mm-hmm. and we have to come to a sense of peace? We don't have all the answers. We don't have our whole life put out in front of us. But at least we're saying I'm open, right? Right, and that, that brings me a question I've always wondered about seminary: is the the, the fellow priests, the, the leaders of the seminary, are they kind of putting pressure on you all the time to say, <laughs> "Hey, are you really sure about this?" Or are they more like sure. trying to just say, "This is where you belong. This is where you belong. Keep it going. Keep it going." I think it's always concentrating on the spiritual side of it. That's right. the number one part: is not what will be, but where are you now. Mm-hmm. Not where will you be, but where are you now? Mm-hmm. And where are you at now spiritually, mm-hmm. uh, service-oriented, mm-hmm. your human formation, academically? Mm-hmm. There's different parts of it, different pillars in the formation process. Mm-hmm. So the, those that work in seminary formation, I think they, they definitely are encouraging, but I think also realize that if somebody comes to a decision that this is not for them, there's actually a... A sadness that somebody's leaving the family of the sure. seminary, you right. develop friendships. But on the other hand, there's a rejoicing because of the fact that's what they're there for. Mm-hmm. The seminary is not a place for people who want to be priests or who know they want to be priests. It's for people who, for men who want to discern, pray about where God is leading them. Mm. We don't have all the answers the day that we that we enter. If only, right? That would make it a lot easier, wouldn't it? Yeah. Life is an adventure, <laughs> and we all know that. <laughs> so you mentioned academics. Can you? Is it even possible to contrast education that you were getting at South Florida versus education that you got in a seminary? Is it? Does it translate at all? Very much so. I I'm a very pragmatic type of person. Mm. I always did very well in math, mm-hmm. and formulas and process. I I always appreciated that and uh, fit well in finding the answer. Mm -hmm. In seminary, it's a very different method of learning Mm -hmm. because we had to have a, I had to have a foundation in philosophy before going into theological classes, theology classes. So uh, philosophy is more liberal arts oriented Mm -hmm. and it was a shift in my mind because you can sit and read 50 pages, but if you don't stop and summarize it in your mind and say, what did I just read in these last couple of hours? You could say, I got nothing out of this. Right. So for me, it was transferring that pragmatic learning style to the liberal arts and to philosophy mm-hmm. of saying, I have to process this. So how do I now take it and write a summary of it? Mm-hmm. And it was extremely helpful when I, uh, was towards the end of my time in the seminary. I did do the, a comprehensive exam in order to receive a Master of Arts in Theology. Mm-hmm. And I chose the comprehensives over a thesis because I said, oh, I would be able to do the comprehensive exam, which was an oral exam, sure. extended oral exam. And how could I process all of that information that I received and summarize 15 of the classes that I had taken over the years and try to understand it and try to blend it together? So that was kind of my challenge with it. And it was a challenge. I will never forget a seminary professor who taught me a way of studying that I needed to learn because I was approaching everything from the, I'll sit and do, I did my homework, 
but the next day, what did you remember? Right. That unless I took it and for me to put it into writing, into some sort of something material, otherwise it sort of uh, just went in and just floated but never really resonated with me. Right. There was no chemistry in seminary either, right? Right. There was, thank goodness. That helps a lot. (laughs) So you come out of you come out of seminary. You're ordained. Uh, you worked. Looking at your bio, you worked just in two parishes. I did actually, yeah, and I had a third assignment in campus ministry. Probably pretty rare. Mm-hmm. I had done a, a pastoral year, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. at a church in Altamont Springs, Longwood, Central Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, Annunciation is the name, mm-hmm. and then I went back there for my first assignment. I was there for seven years which is longer than most of the time for a first assignment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was just a good, it was a good mix. It was a good relationship between myself and the parish. In that time period also, both of my parents passed away. Mm. So I kind of wonder, was there sort of a thought of, well, we'll leave them there a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. And I got along very well with the pastor. And so he, uh, I learned a lot there. Mm. And I think that I learned from that experience because I was there for seven years. I'm not saying that mm-hmm. we will keep our newly ordained for seven years in an assignment, mm-hmm. but I will say that because I developed those relationships there mm-hmm. very early on, mm-hmm. and I think that's what people want in that's their right. church and in their faith. That's right. It's very difficult for people. A lot of grieving goes on when people are moved, when they're transferred. Mm-hmm. They get to know the priest, they get to know their style, and they speak to their soul, and then suddenly they get moved. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a challenge because they wonder, they get anxious. Am I gonna like the new person? Is right. he going to, to be able to, uh, to speak to me yeah. in a similar way? Yeah. So I had seven years there. And at this particular time now, I'm celebrating weddings for some of the children who I baptized back in 1998. Right. And that's kind of interesting. You know, I've right. seen their, them grow up so bringing that back to being a part of a family, I don't have my own family, mm-hmm. but I've been a part of a lot of other families over these years. Mm-hmm. Actually, I have a wedding in a week and a half just before this uh, article will come out mm-hmm. um, for someone who was a student mm-hmm. back in the elementary school. It's here in Savannah, mm-hmm. and she's getting married at Sacred Heart on the 23rd. Wow. Wow. And so I look forward to that, and I know some of her classmates from elementary school will be there. Mm-hmm. I've seen them grow up. I've had the joy of that. And in our lives, we're called to be generative. Generativity can take many different forms. One is we walk the journey with people. We see them grow. That's right. So, What did you learn in that first assignment that they didn't teach you in seminary? What were some <laughs> of the big things that you didn't learn in those six years of seminary? I learned a lot about uh, administration, Mm -hmm. a lot about the parish where I was at was in a great building process. We built a new church, had built a school in that time period as well. A lot of growth was going on. Uh, Learned how to develop good relationships with people. Um, Learned also that good boundaries make for good relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think in terms of keeping our schedule, in terms of how do we keep balance in our lives, being in a parish where we had 4,000 families, at that time mm. it was about 3,000, it was growing, it's now about 4,000. Mm. 
it really, we have to learn how to make sure that we do get good rest and take care of ourselves, eat properly and have a good balance in our lives. And in that period of time, I, I learned that. I was able to live with other priests also, mm-hmm. and we're all different. That's something I learned in the priesthood is mm-hmm. everybody brings their gifts and their talents. We're all different, but we are all representing one. Mm-hmm. And that oneness is that person of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Jesus can come to us in many different ways. So I think I learned quite a bit uh, in that time period. And then from there, I was began to be a, uh, I was asked to be the campus minister at the University of Central Florida. And grow, big rival, right? South Florida Central. South Florida Central. They are actually a big rival. Uh. When I was at USF, though, there was no football team. <laughs> okay. So that kind of grew over time. And so I was at UCF for seven years, actually, as campus minister, but it was a secondary job. Mm-hmm. I never want the students to know it was secondary. I'm right. not saying that in the right way, but I had another job also, another assignment, which was as a parochial vicar at Annunciation. And then I was asked to start a brand new parish, which was a a great experience in Mm -hmm. my priesthood because there was an area northeast of Orlando near the university that was growing very rapidly. There was a need for a Catholic church there. Mm -hmm. And so the bishop at the time, now Archbishop Wenske, uh, determined that a new parish would need to be built there. Mm-hmm. And so it was like being a missionary, which I found kind of exciting, mm-hmm. which helped prepare me to be in South Georgia because we're a mission diocese. Mm-hmm. And we have many places that are small, and uh, not every place has a church, like a permanent church. They That's may right. be worshiping in temporary type of facilities. We were six years worshiping in a public middle school. We had to set up every weekend. Mm-hmm for mass, there was great stewardship, dedication on the part of the people. Right. And uh, also the ministries, seeing what what is necessary, what are the what are the necessary items and what are the nice to haves. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to church, you know, we needed to have mass every weekend. And then we ended up having mass during the week and things opened up. The Eucharist is the center mm-hmm. of who we are. Mm-hmm. Everything flows from that. Mm-hmm. So when we start with a good Eucharistic foundation, we're then able to realize that other ministries are born from that. So we had mass in the public middle school and setting up. I was always grateful that we were able to rent the space. It wasn't free. Mm-hmm. But we also had mass at an IHOP, mass at a Presbyterian church, like and a funeral idea. home. So I learned a lot. I going from place to place at the university we had mass in a storefront sure. and then also in the in the student center we didn't have a home there either. But it's amazing how church without walls mm-hmm. can do great ministry. Mm-hmm. And pretty amazing things happen in that cafeteria of the middle school. We had uh, in the initiation process had beautiful masses and liturgies and uh, can't say that we ever had a funeral in there. We did go to one of the local parishes for that, Mm -hmm. but we did have the opportunity. We'd had a couple of weddings Mm -hmm. there, and people were happy. They were more than happy. It was because it was church. There was no permanent church, so we were able to do it there. Most of the time, they were more convalidations, blessings of their marriages. How did, uh, when they finally got a building, did the, the atmosphere, the whole feeling change, or did it just kind of build on what had already been built? It's a great question. We moved in on Holy Thursday, Mm -hmm. uh, right around the time of our sixth anniversary. It was April, around April 20th of 2011. And we had started in 2005 on April 24th. And so uh, for six years, we waited and waited. And we moved in 
And there was a lot of excitement. And the parish had grown. We had 2,000 families at that point, had 1,000 children in our religious ed program. So you can just tell this area was prime for a Catholic Rolling, church. Yeah. And it was bustling. And we just needed space of our own. You ask about, did it change things? I can't comment on that because a week later, I was transferred. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I never really got, I didn't have the keys in my hand for very long. And I was transferred, which sort of changed a little bit of the plan. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went back to Annunciation where the pastor was retiring. Okay. And so then I went back to w- my first assignment where they say in the priesthood that your first assignment is like your bride. Right. So you kind of have a special relationship there. Yeah. And so I went back to the bride and was the pastor in a different role and served there for from 2011 until... I was called to come here to Savannah. Yeah, I can. St- I can still see where you, you, you guide that. You start that church up. You get it going. You get in the building, and then they transfer you. And I know that you're in position now where you're making that decision for others. Yes, but that has to be hard to. It to was hard. Deal with. It was. Uh, I've already mentioned about when people have assignment transfers. The people grieve. Mm-hmm. The priest also grieves. Mm-hmm because we develop relationship and there is a love, there's a, a selflessness about ministry is what we are called to do, mm-hmm. that that selflessness then leads us to a, a sense of, wow, a love. Mm-hmm. And when you're called to go elsewhere, um, for me it was a grieving, but it was, wow, I, I had hopes and dreams for that parish. Right, right. And we had 60 acres of property and I look forward to developing it and plans one day for a school and many different things and you know to say okay i'm being asked to go somewhere different to do something different mm-hmm. so there is a there is a grieving process i think that's healthy mm-hmm. to go through now i know you're, you're new enough you probably haven't done a whole lot of new assignments since you came on as bishop but how much will that experience mm-hmm. kind of imprint itself on you when you've got to make those kind of decisions very much so i think we have to see the human element mm-hmm. and to see all of the different people that are involved we're not just talking about a priest getting a moving van and moving their things, mm-hmm. there's a lot more involved with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is that 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 transfer to the next leader of that community spiritually. Mm-hmm. And I think I learned that, that that's just very important, preparing the people. Preparing the parish, uh, right. Preparing yeah. the parish for it. And when I've left an assignment, I've always asked the people and mentioned to them that the greatest gift that they can give to me because people want to do something when you leave. Thank you, Father, for your time here. I, I, I've mentioned that the greatest gift that they can give to me as I was leaving those places was to love and to be kind to the person coming in. Right. right. To pray for them and right. to welcome them and to be open to them, that we do rely on the Holy Spirit in these decisions. Mm-hmm. So, no, I've not had m- many transfers that I've had to make. However, that time of year is coming, yes, coming. very quickly, coming. and and life goes on. Mm-hmm. Life happens, and we have priests uh, who've passed away. Mm-hmm. We have priests who retire. Mm-hmm. We have priests who, you know, are in need, or it's time. You know, they're ready for a change. They that's feel right. they've given what they can, and very often that's healthy. Also, yes, the long term can be healthy, but some people's gifts and talents mm-hmm. perhaps need to be developed further. And the manner in which that's going to happen is a different assignment. Mm-hmm. We have to be challenged. That's how we grow. We interrupt this Difference Makers interview to tell you about the Savannah Economic Development Authority, our presenting sponsor. 
you may have seen where Savannah was recently named the top locale in the U.S. for economic development. That's due in part to the Georgia ports and our community's many aesthetic advantages. Great weather, beautiful scenery, friendly people. But the accolades also have much to do with the work of the good folks at CETA, who act as the ultimate connector for businesses looking to relocate to the Savannah area, as well as for existing businesses looking to grow and expand here. From finding the ideal site, to filling workforce needs, to accessing available incentives and beyond, CETA mobilizes proven connections for ultimate gain and is a true difference maker in the Savannah community. Learn more at CETA.org. Now, back to the interview with Bishop Stephen Parks. Did you have any kind of inkling that being a bishop was in your future uh, when you got when it started to be batted around last year? What uh, what was that process like? I uh, I did not. It's not something that we aspire to mm-hmm. as a priest. I was pastor of a large parish. I had responsibilities in the diocese. Certainly, um, I always looked with great respect to the bishop. Mm-hmm. Admired those who I was privileged to work with. Mm-hmm. But it was not something that I myself aspired to. Of course, my brother, who I mentioned, we spoke about earlier, mm-hmm. he was he came to the seminary after I did, mm-hmm. and we were both made pastors at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then we were uh, he was asked to be a bishop or appointed the Bishop of Pensacola, Tallahassee, mm-hmm. in two thousand and twelve. Mm-hmm. So at that particular time. Um, I've, I've seen a little bit of the office through his sure. eyes, right. but it's uh, different than he, he moved. You know, when he was in Orlando, we had dinner every Thursday night. We got together. We were kind of working towards something, helped each other out in many ways. Well, now all of a sudden he's in a different place. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we still kept up today. Thank goodness with communication, sure. text messaging, phone calls, you keep up with one another, but you're in a different place. Our worlds are different. Okay. Uh, so I didn't really, I was able to see the episcopacy, it's what we would call mm-hmm. being a bishop or the office of bishop mm-hmm. through his eyes. However, it took um, the phone call from the papal nuncio to right. say, uh, Stephen, the Holy Father has appointed you to this role. Mm-hmm. We don't apply for it. Right. And I, I don't know if, if, they, if there was that opportunity to apply for it. I'm not sure that I would have. Only from the standpoint that I'll never forget the pastor uh, that I mentioned, my first pastor as a priest. Um, he was kind of, had been in that parish. He was the founding pastor, had been there for 30 years. People always wondered, well, who's going to go there after him? Right. Who's going to, to go there? Who's he like training to go there? And people would say, we'll never forget the bishop at the time, Bishop Dorsey, God rest his soul. He said when he was asked that question, who's going to replace Monsignor one day? And it took 10 years before that happened. But when he was, asked, he was asked that question, he said, I will tell you, the people that apply for it probably shouldn't be applying for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's the people that don't apply for it are the ones probably who have the capability and the, the qualities, the gifts to be able to do the position. Right. So when I say that, I am, am very grateful for the confidence that has been placed in me. But... I was very happy as a pastor mm-hmm. and as a, a priest and serving the people of God where I was. But there is always that openness to the Spirit, and God called me to do this. Mm-hmm. I truly believe it is appointed uh, by the Holy Father, but it's something that has been prayed about, something that has been thought about, 
They're not just random decisions. The Pope just doesn't wake up one day and say, I'm going to move this one and appoint this person a bishop. And right. it's, uh, there's a lot of process that's involved because we're dealing with the beauty, the depth of the spiritual life of people. That's critical. Mm-hmm. And so the decisions that are made, a lot of thought goes into them. I'm sure a lot of people that are listening to this, even some of the more devout Catholics, probably don't understand the difference between being a parish priest and being a bishop, and I know that it's, it's wildly different. If you had to kind of summarize the difference in the roles, how would you do it? Sure. Being a, a, a pastor in a, in a parish, a large parish, we obviously celebrate Mass. We have uh, an involvement in teaching, an involvement in uh, celebrating the beauty of the sacraments. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's administration as well. Those are very similar qualities, the similar responsibilities mm-hmm. that as a bishop, we are called to be a, a teacher. Mm-hmm. We are called to be a sanctifier with mm-hmm. the spirit and celebrating the sacraments, teaching, education, formation, but also that role of being a shepherd. Mm-hmm. And that involves organization mm-hmm. and administration. So some of the, there's similar aspects, similar responsibilities. It's just on a much different scale. Mm-hmm. My, my parish was 4,000 families. We had about 12,000 people, a very large parish, especially in mm-hmm. terms of uh, comparison to our parishes yeah, here in here, South right. Georgia. So it was a very large parish. Uh, however, now we're talking 90 counties and 37,000 square miles and you know 80,000 plus Catholics. Mm-hmm. So it's a much different role. Mm-hmm. Something that has, that has struck me is as a pastor, as a priest, we're assigned to a parish. So you see the congregation week after week mm-hmm. and you preach. I had the opportunity, the privilege of, of helping to be a part of their lives and helping to form them and uh, proclaiming God's word, reflecting with them on the sacred scriptures, celebrating the Eucharist with them on a weekly basis would stand outside of church and see the same people week after week. So somebody would say, I'm having surgery this week. The next week I could ask the family member, how's mom or dad doing? What's going on? You get to know what's happening in their lives. As a bishop, we now in our diocese of Savannah, we have 80 parishes. Mm -hmm. So I don't have that gift of Mm bi-locating and of being in more than one place in the same weekend. So it may be a period of time before I return to a parish and it's, a different sort of relationship there, mm-hmm. a similar love, mm-hmm. a similar caring, but a different relationship in terms of I realize on Sunday morning, I, I'm not preaching to the same congregation week after week. Right. And what message is the Lord asking me to give now as a bishop to the congregation? Right. Preaching, we can give a similar message in terms of preaching, but in my role as a, as a bishop, I am the leader of the church here in South Georgia, the Catholic Church. And so I think there's a greater responsibility with that and also a need for greater prayer, dependence on God. Mm-hmm. You mentioned your brother. He's been a bishop for several years. How much did you lean on him or how much have you leaned on him in the last couple of months as you've transitioned mm-hmm. into this new role? I've been very grateful to have him there when I've had some questions, and he's been very open. He's made it very clear he's there for whatever I would need. So we've had the opportunity to have some good conversations, and I've spent some time together as well in these months. Um, But I also am kind of independent, so yes, I will go to him for counsel. I'm the younger brother, so I will go to the older brother when I feel like I, I need that, and he's been extremely gracious with that. 
But I also think he realizes that there's certain things we learn on our you own. Have to learn on your own, yeah. And we also have our own style, and we're all individual people. Growing up, my mother, we have pictures of us all dressed, the three sons, in the same outfit. Mm. Maybe you have the same experience if you have mm. brothers that you know, you'd know you be dressed, especially in that time period, and uh, the same type of theme for Easter and Christmas or whatnot. I don't think as people, when we get older, as adults, we don't dress alike. <laughs> we, we have our own personalities right. and our yeah. own giftedness. And so I'm very grateful that my brother has been there to answer some questions, as well as my predecessors here in the Diocese of Savannah. I'm grateful that Bishop Boland is here. He's such a blessing to the Diocese of Savannah. And now Archbishop Hartmeyer has also uh, indicated that he's more than happy to help in any way if I ever have any questions. But there are those things we, we do on our own. And I like a sense of trust, a sense of, um, don't want to minimalize it and say adventure i don't think that that's right but we have to we walk by faith not always by knowledge and by sight so we have to go into things in terms of a deeper relationship with god what is god asking me to do in this particular situation and counsel and collaboration all go into that but sometimes we have to ensure that we're doing it in the way that what god is asking of us as individuals right I want to talk to you about your your impressions since you moved uh, since you moved up here. But before I do that, I want to hit one last thing biographical, and that's sure. what you do for fun. I understand that you were a pretty avid cyclist. Is that still? Uh, I, I would say I I I like to ride my bike. When I think of a cyclist, I think of somebody that goes out a hundred miles. I, right. I'm not quite there, and I don't know if I'll ever be there or have that opportunity and the time to do that. I, I, I love the bike. I love getting out on my bike. I actually went out this morning mm-hmm. and have found a great route. It took me a few months mm-hmm. to find a good way to go, and I would call it my maintenance route. So it's a, a, about 14 miles from downtown to um, through Ardsley Park and mm-hmm. by Memorial, across the Truman Parkway, down by Jenkins High School. And I'm thrilled here in Savannah that we're building a bike path. Yeah. And it's Truman beautiful. Trail, right? yeah. it, it is beautiful there from uh, Jenkins High School, Duran, mm-hmm. to go down to Lake Mayer. Right. And I'm hoping it gets expanded from there. I think it is. I really hope that it does. I'll look forward to that. I'm, I'm a big advocate for that of getting out on the trail and walking. And it's great right. to see people out on the trail, mm-hmm. either walking their dogs or families or just enjoying the beauty of South Georgia. Mm-hmm. And so I have been able to get out on the bike, and I do enjoy that. Um, I'm going to be traveling some in the next couple of weeks for confirmations in other parts of our diocese, mm-hmm. and I'm bringing the bike with me. Okay, good. So I'm looking forward to exploring some of the towns along the I-75 corridor, mm-hmm. and then also over in the southwest part of our diocese too. Mm-hmm. Spend a lot of time on a bike, which also spent a lot of time in a car, which is what you're talking about right now. What, what were yes. some of you? What have some of your early impressions, Ben, since uh, we sat down and did a story with you last summer, shortly mm-hmm. after you came in. What have you learned or what's different mm-hmm. from then to now? Well, as we've mentioned, we're, we're 90 counties as the Roman Catholic Diocese of Savannah, which means that there's Chatham County and Savannah and there's 89 other counties. Mm-hmm. We're very diverse. Mm-hmm. And I think that just speaks of what South Georgia is. We have metropolitan areas in our diocese, Savannah, Augusta, Macon, Columbus, Valdosta, Brunswick, areas that are more built up, but there's a lot in between. A lot in between, yeah. And just this past weekend, I drove 
uh, to St. Simon's Island. We mm-hmm. celebrated the funeral for Monsignor John Keneally, whom many know and loved here in Savannah. Mm-hmm. And then I traveled over to Perry area. So um, I stopped along the way in Waycross and also mm-hmm. in Tifton, mm-hmm. but along to the parishes there just to visit and say hello. Mm-hmm. But you see a lot of what, what we see, what I see in South Georgia, there's a lot of rural areas, mm-hmm. um, a lot of areas that have not grown over time. And I don't believe they're going to anytime right. soon. Right. This past weekend, something came to me as I was driving from Waycross to Tifton, and that was that I see a lot of shattered dreams. Mm -hmm. People that moved places, started businesses, they're now closed up. I'd say the construction of the interstate system in Georgia shifted Mm -hmm. the population corridor, you know, further east with 95, and also further west with I-75. And so as a result, there's cities in between where there's a lot of needs mm-hmm. and people live there and they're part of our family. And how do we respond to their needs, especially the young people that live in those areas to ensure that there's good education, that, that there's a caring for them uh, economically, socially, that they have dignity. Mm-hmm. That you know, we, we don't always choose where we live, but as as Catholics, we're called to help all people. We help people not because they're Catholic, but because we are. Mm-hmm. That's what we're asked to do. And so I think that as I drive in some of the rural areas, I realize I'm the bishop of this area. What am I being called to do? How can I and the people of God, whom I'm called to minister to, lift the dignity of those who perhaps are living in not good conditions, Mm -hmm. living in poverty, maybe don't have great opportunities for education. How do we lift them up as children of God? Mm -hmm. Have you got some ideas? I'm going to work with the people (laughs) of God to find that out. To figure that out. Just identifying it. I think it's identifying it. I think that reflecting upon it is the first step. Mm -hmm. Listening, and then really that sense of embracing. Mm -hmm. It's a sense of, I, I believe, falling in love. You know, very often, and I think especially in our world today, we have exposure in so many ways. to The world is at our fingertips. Just Google anything and it comes up. You can find out anything. Well, there's people that aren't that far from us that have needs. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, uh, we may be able to Google anything, but we only see our world as our world. We have tunnel vision. So I, I think really it's a sense of uh, perhaps trying to broaden the vision and to be able to say that how do we as people care for our brothers and sisters who have needs, who we do not see every day, but they have a voice and we can hear their voice. And very often their voice is not heard because they're tuned out and people aren't listening. So I, as a spiritual leader of the Diocese of Savannah, I believe there's a a way, how can I help for us as a diocese and help the people of God, Catholics, non-Catholics, to realize there are those with that voice. How can we listen? How do we try to be more attentive to the needs of others and not just our own needs? Mm -hmm. We're called to be relational and to, to go further out from our own selves. 
with that in mind, COVID-19 kind of presents an opportunity there, mm-hmm. right? Because it's kind of kind of resetting a little mm-hmm. bit. Uh, so you come in fresh. We're having the struggles that we've had with COVID-19. Of course, the churches are back open. The Catholic churches have been open basically mm-hmm. since Memorial Day of last year right. on a limited basis. Is this, as difficult as this has been, is this a good opportunity to kind of steer that a different direction or at least include that direction in, in the path that the, the diocese is going. Part of the uh, opportunity for reflection is needed in what exactly you're asking for. Mm-hmm. And I, we have to reflect upon what has this time meant for us? Mm-hmm. I think we would be making a great, a grave perhaps even mistake just saying, I just want to get back to normal. Mm-hmm. This time period, these last 13 months, I believe we have to step back and think, what has this taught us? What did we miss most in that period of lockdown? What do we need? What are we being called to do as we rise from the ashes? And what does that look like? So I think first we have to think about it, reflect upon it, and then we may be able to look to a time of renewing, Mm -hmm. of renewal, because there are great opportunities here. People are returning to mass and to worship. Our churches have been open since last late spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've put protocols into place. Mm-hmm. I think we've done very well, and I'm extremely grateful to our pastors and the leadership of our parishes, the staffs, as well for their uh, ability to have the protocols into place. But we also have to see what have we learned from this? Mm-hmm. What have we learned from the technology that has been brought forth that's become necessary it's become a lifeline for us spiritually and some of our churches some of our our parishes are upgrading their technology to cameras not just a phone on a stand but rather on the wall and realizing this is here to stay Mm -hmm. this is not going anywhere so the ability to live stream in the future has become more commonplace And especially for those who are shut-ins, those who are at home, those who are not well or able to be at Mass. Also, the sense of parochialism, meaning we often belong to a parish. Mm -hmm. But during this time of pandemic, the parish has become worldwide Mm -hmm. because people are watching Mass in all different places. So we have people in Savannah that have listened to a priest in Minnesota, let's say, and they say, wow, this priest really speaks to me. We have to realize how are we going to ensure that they come back physically to Mass. But I think we've also learned that ministry is relational. It is about presence. And technology can be part of that presence, but it's not the whole deal. Mm -hmm. Really in-person relationship, the ability for us as Catholics to receive the Eucharist, the ability to pray together, the ability to share together, the ability to serve together. We crave that as people. We need that. So I think the opportunity exists to say, what does church look like going forward? Much will be similar. Our beautiful traditions as Catholics and what we respect, what we love about our church. But also I think it's an opportunity to say, what have we learned from this time period? And who can we become? What is it that we're being called to do in terms of evangelization, in terms of community building, in terms of education? I look at families. Two years ago, families never would have thought that they would have their children at home. Right. 
and that there would not be in-school learning. Well, look at what's happened. And parents who probably never thought they'd be able to do it, they were able to do it. I would hope for a parent that they would see their role now as, yes, my child goes to school, but maybe they're more involved in the education process, more attentive to what their children are learning. That comes because for a period of time, they were the sole teachers in the home with, them, with the children connecting in via technology. But parents may be embracing it more. I think we as church can look at and say, how can we help educate people more? Will preparation for sacraments look different? Mm-hmm. Will community gatherings look different? Will our call to serve look different? You know, many have done, uh, many economically have survived well during this time of pandemic. Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. But many, their situation has gotten worse. And how do we try to lift them up and to help so that they don't slip into a, a, a poverty that is um, beyond help? I don't think it's ever beyond help because we can always help. But I would want to think that those who perhaps um, work very hard on a daily basis, that because of inflation and rising costs, they can't keep up with their expenses. How do we, how do we assist have a little safety net for them. Yeah. And make sure that they plan for the future. Getting people back to church. And it's not just it's not just the Catholic Church, it's it's churches mm-hmm. all over. But the full disclosure here, I I'm the president of a parish council of a of a church within the diocese, so I've seen the numbers as mm-hmm. all the way back to the start and how the attendance numbers, the pew counts, mm-hmm. and how it's building back and building back and building back. And I know that before we turn on the microphones, you talked about Easter, and, mm-hmm. and the turnout from Easter was was very strong. Mm-hmm. What do the next couple of months hold? I mean, it's vaccines. I think 25% of Americans now, or at least ones that are eligible for the vaccine, have went ahead and mm-hmm. got fully vaccinated. How is that going to change how people – uh, feel or how churches approach having more in-person and maybe even getting to the point where they start to lift some of the restrictions uh, mm-hmm. in our church every other pew is blocked off the social distancing the masking sure. uh, all of that is, is obviously necessary mm-hmm. but it kind of limits how many people you can have in church what mm-hmm. does that look like over the next couple of months i think we're moving towards that that just as businesses uh, and other systems within our culture continue to open up we also have to look at that and to be hopeful about it. We're not going to permanently have a pew between everybody. It's not possible for us to do. So I would say, I believe in the next uh, few months, and I think we have to prepare people for this. I don't think we all of a sudden have the congregation show up and there's no protocols. I think that would be a a mistake. Mistake, I think rather we have to prepare set a date that this is the date we're going to be removing the tape or the rope from the pews. We're asking you for your sense of personal responsibility. Mm. Just as we have it when we go to the supermarket, just as we have it if you travel on an airplane. I was on a plane a few weeks back and uh, they're starting to seat people in the whole plane. Mm. If we can sit next to somebody in an airplane and feel safe about it for hours potentially, I think we can also seat them comfortably in church as well. I think it will take time. It is about the comfort level of the person. And again, that personal responsibility, if, you're, if you have any symptoms, please stay home. Right. 
I think that might be something that will come from this, that people who do have uh, symptoms of a cold, for instance, that they may be less likely to be out in the public realm. Mm -hmm. And that's something that will help protect them. You're not going to work through it anymore. Right, exactly. And maybe more likely to put a mask on Mm -hmm. if they have any types of symptoms. If you're coughing, definitely uh, to to have that. So I think we're going to be easing those restrictions. I'll be meeting actually this week in a few days with some of the leaders of our diocese uh, throughout the diocese in different regions Mm -hmm. uh, to find out and to discuss what the next steps are. But I don't believe that we're suddenly just going to reopen. Throw it open, right. And I, I, it will, it's going to be a process. We have to respect that with our congregation and realize that everybody is in a different place. I think we would all agree that as these weeks are going on, there is more of a comfort level. Mm-hmm. Because the vaccines are more commonplace, it's opened up to us. I, we've had visitors here in Savannah whom I've met in different situations. Uh, who have said that, wow, I'm visiting from up north and you're much more opened up here than we were up north. It's wonderful to be here. Mm -hmm. They like getting that and seeing that. So as our government continues to reevaluate, we also look to Mm reevaluate and see what are best practices. I think that's probably probably the best way to look at it. And we've seen that we've been able to develop best practices over these past months uh, even with, with our school system, our Catholic schools mm-hmm. have been open since yeah. the beginning since of the August school year. Yep. And yes, we've had uh, some cases, but we've also been able to keep the whole school open and and manage the cases individually and with classrooms. Mm-hmm. And it seems to have worked. Mm-hmm. That's That's a good sign. I think we can manage the continuation of the pandemic. I think we manage it as opposed to allowing it to manage us. Right. And that means that we recognize that there is still potential for spread of virus, Mm -hmm. but we have to take do our part in order to ensure that we are not uh, in partnership with it, but we're trying to avoid it. Also, we cannot forget those who have been affected Mm -hmm. in this time period. And this goes back to... Uh, the idea of ministering to people and what have we learned we have to realize that people haven't seen their relatives in a year right there are some people in who live in residential facilities especially our elderly population they haven't had visitors in this time period mm-hmm. what are the psychological the spiritual effects of that mm-hmm. how how do we how do we move forward our our young people who haven't seen their grandparents for a year I think we have to recognize and honor that mm. and make it special so that we realize we don't want to go back to that. We want to have the gift of relationship. Right. And ministering to them is so important again, right? That's and ministering helpful. to them and to the families who have been affected by COVID, who've lost loved ones, honoring that. We don't just move on and say, oh, I want to close that chapter. Right. People lost their lives during this time period. Families have been affected in many different ways, and they were not even able to go to the funerals. Mm -hmm. They had to watch it through a live stream. What will it be for that person to go to the graveside of a loved one who died from COVID, who they couldn't, they never had closure? Well, we have to help people and minister to them so that we can, in a healthy way, allow them to look to the future with hope.
obviously you're still trying to get to know a lot of people within your own house, but I'm sure you've talked to leaders of other faiths around town. <laughs> what are you hearing from them in terms of, of getting back to back to church? Because I know the Catholic Church has probably been on the leading edge of this. There's a mm-hmm. lot of churches that, that are just now getting back or some that aren't even getting back. What are they telling you about their approach to dealing with the, the pandemic? I, I think they're cautious. Mm-hmm. Again, because of the pandemic, I've not had the opportunity to interact as much as I would like to. I'm hoping that that's something that will change in the coming months, that we do have an opportunity to visit more. From what I understand, though, I think there's a cautiousness, mm-hmm. and, uh, and rightfully so, but we also have to move forward. Mm-hmm. This isn't the way our, our churches uh, of all denominations cannot survive on a live stream. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it has to have in-person you know, Jesus called people walking on the seashore. Mm-hmm. He spoke to them in person mm-hmm. and he said, come and follow me. They dropped everything mm-hmm. and followed him. Mm-hmm. So church cannot be only a slice of our life. It has to be the filling. So it's not a slice of the pie of our life. It's uh, it's not just something we take out, we chomp on, we put back in when we want it. Mm-hmm. Um, our faith and our relationship with God is the filling of that pie. Mm-hmm. It's in all aspects of our lives. So to take an hour, it was very helpful during the lockdown to have the live stream and in this time period as we're returning to in-person worship, but it's not sustainable long-term because we can't just tune on for what we want, take what we want, and then put it back. It's in-person worship helps us nurture the filling. There's a hunger of the soul. And we probably need that nurturing now more than ever, particularly mm-hmm. we just saw a, a poll come out a week ago or, or even two weeks ago that it was a, a poll of Americans and whether they had faith in their lives, whether they considered mm-hmm. themselves Christians or Muslims or, or people of faith. And for the first time, it had dropped below 50%. Yes. And I know that uh, obviously Catholics Come Home campaign has been going on within the church for many, many years now. Mm-hmm. Where are we in terms of of as a society being a society of faith mm-hmm. and how can we maybe pull more people back into the faith whether mm-hmm. it's catholic faith or, or some other faith mm-hmm. i think as people we are uh very complex we're not just physical we're not just emotional we're also spiritual so we cannot close that door to the spiritual side of ourselves some may not claim any particular religion as this survey indicates however it doesn't mean that that spiritual side is not there and we never know what will inspire them i think we have to remember that god is always present to us we may not always be present to god but he's always present to us always making himself known i think that through the gift of church and a faith community it helps us to grow as people. And it's more than just going to church and sitting in a pew on Sunday. Mm-hmm. It's also that ability to learn, its ability to care for the spiritual part of ourselves, to feed it, and also to be a part of the community. That again, we are not in isolation. Church brings people together. Mm-hmm. And we have a need for that. And pe- many people, they don't find that in their neighborhood. They may not find it at work, especially today if we're working from home right. and there's not that opportunity for uh, conversation at the water cooler, but 
church is an opportunity for people to come together and we we have to do that so i think that as church how do we encourage people through the good works of the church through the gift of learning through the gift of nurturing the spirit Mm. and we don't give up we never give up on people Mm. we never know what's going to happen in our lives where we're going there's going to be a transformation and a realization that there's a need for god the pandemic has brought it to some people right so for some who perhaps drop off from faith in this time period we don't give up hope that they will return their their return may be drawn with crooked lines Mm -hmm. however we also realize that there are some who perhaps were not attending church who realized on Sunday morning, maybe I'll watch that live stream. Maybe there was something there that touched them, that inspired them and invited them to come back and they may return. So we're hopeful for that. Over the 2000 year history of the church, the church has faced many, many challenges. Facing some now, mm-hmm. whether it's uh, society uh, opinions or, or feelings about uh, homosexuality, whether it is uh, women in the priesthood, whether it is uh, the church's um, unfortunate series uh, of mm-hmm. sex abuse scandals. How much difficult is it for the church today? And what do you see the church as doing in terms of, of combating or not combating, dealing with those crises mm-hmm. or however you want to, uh, however you want to describe them to get people Uh, excited about the faith again Mm -hmm. first and foremost I will address you mentioned the sexual abuse crisis the church is uh, we have to recognize that there has been a blight upon us with this and I pray for those who've been affected in any way those who have been victims in any way uh, in our diocese around the world And I think we have to recognize that and walk the journey with them to know there is an opportunity for uh, healing. There is an opportunity. We're here for them to help look to the future. I think that that being said, the church has grown in its transparency Mm -hmm. and there's a definite need for transparency Mm -hmm. within the church, within our culture. When it comes to other areas of our moral life, Mm-hmm. Uh, we are who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, we believe certain aspects, um, and I think we have to realize that this is who we are. Uh, when it comes to issues, uh, marriage mm-hmm. and the preservation, the protection of marriage between a man and a woman, mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to uh, issues of um, same-sex attraction, mm-hmm. um, I, we as church, we minister we have to meet people where they're at in those situations and bring them where God wants them to be. So I think we have to listen, have to be present, have to have a sense of openness, but also we accompany people where God wants them to be. So we don't just say, I'm here and you're here and we can't have a relationship. That's, mm. that's not, there's not a, that barrier there. Rather, it's how can we work together, care for one another, and walk together towards God? That's what our goal is. That's what our mission is. So we meet people where they're at, bring them where God wants them to be, 
and where he would like for them to be. Our current Pope, our Holy Father, Pope Francis, I think he's done really some remarkable things in terms of communication, in terms of speaking a language that people understand. I think that's why he's very loved. Right. Because uh, very often we only get a soundbite of Pope Francis. We don't get the full story or all of the all of the sentences that he said. We just get a soundbite from an interview. And sometimes it's best you have to go to the entire conversation. The context, right. Just like the Bible. Mm. We don't just take a scripture verse. We look at what came before and what came after. And uh, very often in commentary, especially with the Holy Father, we have to see what was the context of the conversation. But I think that he speaks a language, he speaks to the heart of people, and I think that that is certainly helpful. Mm. And I think bringing people, people of other faith traditions tell me often, I love your Pope. Or I'll be walking in an airport, they see that I'm a Catholic priest, and uh, and we'll just say, hey, I gotta, gotta love Pope Francis. Mm. Oh, good for that, I'm glad. I'm glad he's recognized as a spiritual leader throughout the world, not just of the Catholic Church. Yeah. Absolutely. We can't talk about challenges without talking about accomplishments. Of course, uh, sure. the mission of the church is, is growing and, and finding successes uh, not only around the country but around the world. Uh, some of the things that, that you've seen from a mission standpoint for the church that have really top of mind for you that you're really, as a, as a priest and a representative mm-hmm. of the church, you're, you're proud of, are there, are there some that stick out? Mm-hmm. I, I'm very excited about that we as church, we're one of the largest social institutions in the world. Mm. The amount of good work that is done in the name of the Catholic Church. And very often people look at it from their parish. They bring food to the food pantry of their parish. Mm-hmm. That's that's part of a larger universal effort to feed the poor. That sense of learning in our Catholic education system. What am I what am I, I proud of? We we educate throughout the world in our education system. Mm-hmm people who uh, are leaders in the world, in our communities, in our families. So I, I think that we remember that. I, I think it's something we do and we can do very well. Unfortunately, not everybody has the ability to have a Catholic school near them. I think we have to work on the affordability of it mm-hmm. and making it available to more people. That's certainly a challenge within that. But I think we can be pleased with the work that is done through not only the elementary school system, the high school system, also colleges. Mm -hmm. Some of our great universities have hundreds of years of history that it it was born from the gift of the Catholic Church and born from faith. We've done, I think, a magnificent job of of that throughout the years and continue to have to reevaluate where we're at and make sure that it is sustainable. We as church are able to, again, work with, bring people to be the people they are called to be. That's what, that's what we're about, our, our faith. It's to be a voice for those, again, who have a voice, but their voice is not heard. It's to be able to help people, help you as a husband, as a father, as a citizen. How does church give guidance with that? Um, I think that our preaching, I can get excited about that, being real, being relevant, Uh, to people in our lives, I think we have to make sure that we give a message that speaks to the heart of people, that they can grasp at. That's not something that they can find in a philosophy book Mm -hmm. uh, or is out of the the reach of comprehension. 
I think we're called upon to make the message understandable, mm -hmm. real, relevant, and relational. Well, this has been a, a very delightful conversation. Thanks for taking the time and, and being so so open. And uh, I'm sure that most of the listeners really appreciate it. And it was good to catch up and uh, belated welcome. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. appreciate the opportunity. And uh, please feel free to invite me again. You have been listening to the Difference Makers podcast. Thanks again to our sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Hear more Difference Makers interviews by searching Savannah Difference Makers on your favorite podcast app or by visiting savannahnow.com slash podcasts. On behalf of producer Zach Dennis, thank you for listening. Thank you.